my mental health and just general mood is a lot better when I just accept the way things are and actually try to not just accept it, but to love it, to say whatever is happening, like this is going to be awesome. Hey there, my guest on the One-Eyed Man podcast today is a fascinating gentleman by the name of Pierre Duplessis. So Pierre is a public speaker. He is a motivational speaker. He is a self-proclaimed dissident preacher. He's deeply passionate about people, deeply passionate about humanity, and really interested in helping people train and you might think of physical training, he's passionate about that as well, but train themselves intellectually, emotionally, psychologically to become more conscious, more considered, and more considerate human beings. He's a fascinating human. Our conversation basically got to the fifth level of depth almost immediately, and I really did enjoy chatting to Pierre about a range of different topics. He's just published a book called Train Naked and hosts a community of considered and conscious leaders called Palestra that you'll be able to check out and I'll put those links in the show notes as well. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did and if you did, please feel free to share it with your friends and networks. Enjoy Pierre Duplessis. So my good man, in the conversation leading up to this recording and the conversation we try to have before the last recording that never happened, <laughs> you mentioned this really interesting Latin phrase, right? Like this amor... What is it? Amor fatty. I pronounce right? amor fatty. I'm actually not sure. Like amor fatty. No, I don't know. Amor fatty. Amor fatty. You don't want to put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. <laughs> on the long syllable. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so what does that mean? And what does it mean for you? It's been my mantra for the past two, three weeks. Now that we're semi in lockdown, I don't know, level 2.75 something. So uh, amor, fati, amor fati or whatever, it means love, faith. It's a sort of a stoic maxim or saying or philosophy that you should not try to change your fate. And more than just accepting it, you should learn to love it, to love whatever happens to you, which is a pretty big freaking ask because we are, I mean, I would classify myself as a very kind of existentialist person in control of my own destiny and uh, I make choices and I choose which way my life goes and all of that. But recently it seems that the other side of the coin is also just as true. I suppose there's a paradox there, but um, that you should just love fate and not resist it. Well, at least not all of the time. It's, it's just been like a really cool practice for me in like, in like the past two weeks with all the crazy stuff that's going on. And there's so much, in, I don't know about everybody else, but like in my life at the moment that I just cannot control, like stuff, rules and things governments make and things that viruses cause and um, opinions that people have that are completely outside of my control. And rather than raging, doing the classic Western thing, raging against the dying of the light, I decided to embrace this maxim, at least for now, for a while, amor fati, which means love, fate. And it's incredible what it does. I mean, to me, just the way, you know, that it helps my sort of mental health and just general mood is a lot better when I just accept the way things are. And actually try to not just accept it, but to love it, to say that this is going to, whatever is happening, like this is going to be awesome. Like there's going to be something is going to happen that's going to be great, even though I don't know what it is. Or sometimes I don't know if that always works like that. I'm never kind of like the there's a silver lining kind of person. I think it, 
there's like a seed within disaster and within something that seemingly that looks wrong that there's something in there that we miss. Do you know that that story where the the farmer his son gets killed and then the guy says, mm-hmm. I've got bad news for you, your son got killed. And he says, Well, we'll see. And then something else happens and he goes, well, we'll see. And the whole story goes on and on and on like that. And eventually he gets like all this money or something. So there's no need to accept. Oh, I feel like we really need to unpack that story in more detail, Pierre, because it's, it started quite tragically and it ended well. And there wasn't much in between those two. So <laughs> <laughs> I, I need to find that whole story. I can't remember exactly. I just remember the moral of the story. It's like one thing happens and then everybody thinks it's bad. And then the father just says, well, we'll see. And then that bad thing turns out to be a good thing. And then the good thing happens and everybody says, well, that's really great. And he says, well, we'll see. And then that causes another bad thing. So it goes up and down and up and down and up and down. You can't really say what things are going to be until they've been. We've jumped into some higher order cognitive tensions pretty quickly, right? Because (laughs) I do that. (laughs) This might be the question is almost everything you think about the world and almost everything you feel about what happens around you or happens to you depends on how you think about fate and think whether you believe that in some way the world around us is organized or coordinated or destined to be the way it is or whether you believe that it is completely and utterly random and that your you know kind of free will is, is an illusion because well no actually if you believe it's random very often you associate that with having complete free will to determine whatever it is that you want to do right because nothing is ordained but this is where it's at right like is this belief that the world is arranged in a particular way for you or around you or that you have the complete power to change your circumstance or to change your fate or to change the way that things are happening to you. Where do you find yourself on that? Is that a, is that a spectrum? Like, is that a continuum? We jumped way in the deep end. I think like, that is one of the, like the great mysteries of life is everything. Is it like predestined to an extent? Is there fate or is there something like luck or is it all up, up to chance or is it up to choice? Chance or choice. So, Obviously, I don't know. I think it's, I know maybe this sounds like a cop-out answer, but I think it's both. So I think there are things in your life that you cannot control and there are things that you can control. I suppose that's like the basic stoic idea as well. It's like you have to, the lesson is, or the, the wisdom comes in when to discern which is which. I think we, as like sort of enlightened, so-called enlightened Westerners, we tend to think that everything is within our control. And we hate this idea of fate, that there are some things that are not within our control, and we rage against it. I mean, that's that famous quote, rage that I just quoted earlier, like rage against the dying of the light. And that thinking has like formed us so much, and I think it screws us to like a, very, very often. So there are times in life where you just have to accept that this is what's happening, like this is the cause that you've been dealt. So especially like at the present time, like when, you know, we just get dealt these lockdown rules and you as a business owner or as an individual, you just say, that's the deal, dude. Like there's no choice. You don't get a choice now. And it's really difficult for people. It's been really difficult for me as well. So, which is why I eventually just came upon this Amor Fati thing again and said, well, you know what? We're just going to have to play the cards as they dealt. 
so there's a paradox within that statement. You get a certain deck of cards, but you can play them any way you want. Yeah, so I tend to like the idea of, of paradox, like the two things that are true at the same time, but that are opposite. That's been something that's been guiding, I don't know, my the way that I live life and the way that I make decisions quite a bit, like this, to work within that tension. Because it's within the tension that you find life, that you find meaning. And sure, sure, I agree with that. Yeah, it's it's in not knowing that that you're open to new experiences and to new discoveries. You know, I grew up under kind of the guise of a monotheistic belief system, and part of the teachings of those that system is that there is an all-knowing, uh, all-seeing God who has a plan. You know, that's written into the Bible, and that. My understanding of it or my interpretation of it was that you kind of you opt into that plan or not. You're either on that path or you're sort of wandering in and around it. And obviously there will be many different ways to interpret those texts and the variations of them that have come since. But when I moved from that primary belief system, I then went to kind of the other extreme of there is no meaning and there is no order and no plan. And so I just kind of there is only the decision I make to create meaning and to be accountable for my own actions and, and so on, you know? So in, in a meaningless world, the only sensible thing to do with that is to fill it with your own meaning, which is very much the Tim Minchin view of things, you know? Yeah. And then yeah. Simon Dingle, whom I adore, except for this, because this really screwed up my worldview, he introduced me to a Sam Harris talk, which was presented at the Festival of Dangerous Ideas a couple of years ago in Sydney. And, and that talk was titled the, the Delusion of Free Will. And he makes the interesting point right in the beginning of that presentation where he says pretty much the only thing that unites most impassioned believers with most impassioned atheists is their shared interest in the existence of free will, because the believer believes that free will is important because that gives you the ability to choose God. And choosing God is an important tenet of the faith. And when you choose Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are saved and so on and so forth. The atheist believes free will is important because that that kind of endorses their worldview of meaninglessness and I can fill it with the things that are important to me. You know, he kind of throws a bomb at both of those and goes, there is no such thing as free will regardless of what you believe because we can only choose based on the product of everything we've experienced in the past, uh, everything that has come before this, everything that, and, and if listeners really want to have their minds blown, it's worth listening to because it is a, it is a very powerful and very challenging talk about the, uh, what we might believe to be true about free will and what, would, what it would mean if it wasn't real, if, if we didn't actually have free will, if our minds were choosing essentially for us based on past experience. Um, how do you think about free will, Pierre? <laughs> that's, that's like such a long intro. You like theology to a theodicy question with some nihilism and some popular Sam Harris thrown in. Um, yeah, just throw it together, yeah. Yeah, yeah, just mix them together. It's fine. Um, <clears throat> how do I think about free will? I think that I have to just reflect on that for a second. I think that we grow up within a certain sphere and within a certain tradition. Mm -hmm. so, and I have to agree that there is a lot less free will than we think, but I think that within our tradition, we have an immense amount of free will. So there's this idea that I love that 
and it, and it goes back to practice and training that like it's only the disciplined ballerina that can perform in the New York ballet as the prima ballerina. Right. Got you. So it's, and it's only the, the disciplined violinist that can, that will get first violin. So that has the freedom to get first violin. And it's only the disciplined acrobat that has the freedom to do a triple back somersault. And I think that our traditions, or I suppose what I haven't seen that Sam Harris talk, so I don't know what it's about. So I think that there's a, a freedom that our confines actually give us that we won't otherwise be able to have. So our traditions and the way that we've brought up. So I'm a Westerner living in Africa. I grew up in a Dutch Reformed Protestant um, tradition and um, Afrikaans and uh, all those things determined something about me. But when I embraced those things as something about me, as my history and where I come from, then that gives me a massive amount of freedom to do something awesome within those traditions and within those confines. Okay. So like the rigor of a practice schedule allows Quentin de Kock to exercise his talent in the heat of the battle. So the important thing is on training, right? Yeah. Segways us beautifully into this extraordinary book that you've written, uh, which is called um, Train Naked. Yeah. Train in the Bible. What does that mean? Because I'm interested. I'm obviously a writer, so I'm like, I love words. And like every single word, every every word is a metaphor. And mm-hmm. every metaphor is based on an image. Because that's how we learn to talk. You know, the, the image comes way before the word. You know what a bottle is before you can say the word bottle. You know what milk is before you say the word milk. So image comes before words. So the image behind train naked is obviously somebody training in the buff. But the word for gymnasium in Greek means to train in the nude. It's gymnasia or gymnos. So it means to train in the nude. So ancient Greeks, as many people know, trained in the nude in the gymnasiums. They also competed in the nude in the Olympics. And there's like many different stories and legends and things about why this happened and why it is like that. And like the one that I like the most is one that says um, it was just cool. Like, not literally cool, like cool, cool, like the metaphor, like they're cool guys. <laughs> like yeah, one, one guy who won a marathon, his loincloth fell off and he just finished the marathon anyway. He didn't stop to pick it up. And everybody yeah. thought, that's really cool. He's such a legend. And then everybody just started dropping their loincloths. So this idea of training naked, yeah, I mean, you mentioned scripture earlier. There's a this particular text in First Timothy where the Apostle Paul writes to his disciple is timothy and then teaches him and Mm. says to him you know like physical exercise is good but spiritual exercise is better and um so he uses this 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 word humnos this to 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 speak when he writes to timothy and this word means to train naked so a friend of mine tom smith actually put me onto this idea like 15 years ago or something that he thinks that Paul used that word intentionally as a metaphor to say that you have to train in the nude spiritually in all aspects of life, like meaning that you show up just as you are, that you, that you try, that you try. And if you fail, then that's fine. That you show up to the practice, to the training, to the discipline, just as you are without any mask, without any pretense, without any sort of bravado or whatever, you just come at it and try. And if you fail, then that's fine. And you get up and you try again. 
So that's where this name comes from, this tray naked thing that I've been writing about. And when we think about the act or the commitment to intellectual or spiritual behavior, I tend to think more of it in intellectual terms just because of kind of my framework for belief. That's something that we don't often do, right? You've not just written a book about it, but you're actually creating space just like a local gym or Virgin Active where willing individuals can go and, and do this exact thing. I mean, how, how have you achieved that? And so what's, what's cool for me, I mean, this metaphor goes even further, like the, the, the gymnasia or the ancient Greek gyms were not just places for physical exercise. They had, if you walk through them, if you go and you see the ruins and you walk through one of these um, gymnasia, you'll see like that there were spaces that were just for learning, for like uh, intellectual exercise and philosophy and debate. So yeah. you, you go and you exercise and you take a steam bath and then you have a conversation about philosophy. That was like your local virgin active. Like I can't see any like intelligent conversations happening at your local virgin active. Sorry. I was like, we need spaces like these where you can train your mind, train your soul or spirit or psyche or whatever you want to words you want to use. And then train to become better because that's good, because that's a good thing to do. So what I've done is to create a space like this online where people can, they subscribe and then we send out, a, or I send out a practice every week and we do the practice together and we try and figure it out and we share readings and we share like just beautiful things as well, like good design and art and reflect on these things and try and encourage one another to you know, build more meaningful lives and like start doing work that matters. So that's like kind of the goal behind it is to do work that matters and live a meaningful life. Yeah, so we built it, which is pretty rad. You can train alone. You know, we're going to extend this metaphor as far as we can. You can, yeah. you can train alone. I mean, a mutual friend of ours, Bronwyn Williams, who reads approximately 17 books every week, I'm sure is doing remarkable work training her own psyche and her own brain. Yeah. But I think what I'm hearing you say, and I certainly have experienced this myself, is that there's something about the accountability to an interaction with a group of peers that sharpens your intellect and your psyche and your spirit in different ways. What do you think happens in the group context that you can't or that is harder to replicate on an individual basis? So a couple of things. So Bronwyn is actually part of our community as well. Now <laughs> that you mention it, yeah. She was actually one of the first people to sign up. So there's a magic to doing something in community. We, human beings are, we are like tribal animals. So we like being together. The moment you start doing something together as a group, then there's a different dynamic that kicks in. There's like a, a shame and a reward thing. You want to like be the best in the group because we are also those animals that keep on comparing ourselves to one another. So you want to try and be the best and be the alpha. It's like a very instinctual thing to do. And you also don't yeah. want to get left behind. You don't want to feel left out. So you don't mm -hmm. want to leave the group as well because a group historically is where there's safety. So you will like do what the group does so that you can fit in so that you can be safe. So it's using those like very kind of old patterns in our brains to help us get what we want. That's the reason CrossFit works so well and why like it's such a freaking phenomenon because people train together. 
Like, and it's co-ed and it's like men and women all in the same class and everybody doing the same thing together and everybody suffering together. And that's why it works so well. And that's why, you know, gym memberships at like your local big gym, they don't work that well. I mean, I suppose that's the actual model. They don't want them to work that well because they sell a whole lot more than, than the gym can actually take. And you just hope like only a tenth of the people or quarter of the people actually show up. But something like CrossFit works the other way around. It's designed to get you there. And so using that model, doing something in a community is much better if you actually want to achieve your goal. If this is your first time listening to The One-Eyed Man and you're wondering what I'm trying to achieve here, why don't you take a moment to go back to the trailer episode at the beginning of Season 1. It's really short, I promise, and will give you some insight and context. If you're enjoying the show, please consider sharing this episode or The One-Eyed Man channel with, well, all of your friends in the entire world. And now, back to the show. So this is all part of, I guess, you know, the book Palestra is the name of the community. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Palestra is a, it's a name of a wrestling school, name of a Greek wrestling school. <laughs> Intellectual wrestling school. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so the book Train Naked, Palestra, the talks that you do, this is all part of your identity in the world is a you call yourself a, a dissident preacher oh yeah <laughs> which is a, a fairly unique moniker right there's not a hell of a lot of people running around calling themselves that where did that come from what's behind the preacher or the story of becoming that and then more probably more importantly what's behind the story of the dissidents of the dissidents <laughs> so yeah. I, I think my life if i if i look back at it it's only like hindsight is 2020 like my life has always been in some aspects to try and inspire other people to like talk and, and teach and eventually write. I never thought I would write, but like now I'm writing, but to inspire and to like spread truth or whatever truth is to try and get people and get myself to, to sort of live a more meaningful life, to, to build something that actually matters. So um, the preacher thing. So I, I, I am a preacher and I like that word, like, even though it's an old word and it's got like a weird, it's got like a weird image behind it. And it, it, it always feels to me like this, you know, like these, you know, those, those old like Western movies and you have like the preacher that like, he always, and, like he carries a shotgun and it's like all dirty. And it's like, I, I just love that. Like, it's like this badass image, which I'm thinking. Wasn't the first thought I had more like Fry Tuck. Oh, like Fry Tuck. Fry Tuck in like Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves is such a badass. And he makes all of that beer. Remember that movie? True. Valid point. I'll give you that. I love, he, I he, love that character. Like that's one of my favorite characters. The, or the, the way that he was portrayed in that, like in that, in that particular adaptation of Robin Hood. Sure. Isn't that the same guy that played Robert Baratheon later on in Game of Thrones? Is it? I don't know. I think it might be, which is, is quite a leap if you think about it character-wise. He was a lot more uh, well-rounded. It might be. Hmm. That'll be interesting. That'll be interesting to go to go and to go and to go look at. So I preach. So I preach about every Sunday, and I I work for a church here in Cape Town, like part time, and I do my other stuff. So I like this idea of preaching. So theology and spirituality and all of that—it's a big part of my life. Preaching for me, like the Greek for it, is kerygma. Like it means declaring truth, but truth is a very uncomfortable thing. So. Often when you speak truth, it's not something that people like to hear. Ironically, especially in church, like people don't like to hear <laughs> the truth. 
So there's a there's a dissidence to it. So dissident is something. It's somebody that's dissident. It's somebody that's dismantling the status quo. That'll say the opposite thing. That'll challenge the the institution of the day. And for me, preaching is actually supposed to do that. Like it's supposed to be challenging the institution of the day. It's supposed to be challenging the status quo. It's supposed to be this prophetic kind of a voice that that says, "Why does something have to be like this? Why can't it be like this, like that?" Or it, it's supposed to say, you know, that what is busy happening is wrong and it's not truthful. It's not helpful. It's not great for the well, society or whatever, and to call it out. So I like that idea of being uh, calling myself like a dissident preacher because I don't want to. It's very difficult for me to associate with the with your stereotypical pastor or Christian minister or something because I'm I really don't fit that box very very well at all. And mm. uh, yeah, so that's where the dissidents sort of come from, like challenging the status quo. That's really interesting. So, so I'm I'm wrong and right. He he, it was not the guy that was Robert Baratheon because we would have been quite young back then. But he was Frytuck in that Robin Hood, the one with what's his name, Russell Crowe. Russell Crowe, yes. So he was in the Russell Crowe Robin Hood that nobody ever watched. I was both right and wrong. So there we go. Schrodinger's fact. <laughs> so here's a question for you, Pierre. I love that point that you made around preachers are supposed to challenge the conventions of the day and ask us as congregants, the people who are listening, to to move to a different level of thinking, a, a different way of seeing reality. Yeah. Now, I'd argue that most preachers today, certainly preachers in, in the conventional monotheistic faiths, are incentivized to keep us rooted to truths that are embedded in the past, right? That are, that hold fast the institutions of old, that protect the, the kind of bastions of, of traditional belief. And the people who preach today, here's a saucy take for you, are comedians. Comedians, I find, especially the very good ones, do a really good job at challenging convention and challenging assumptions and challenging the the most established traditions of the world in in an in sometimes quite an offensive way but under the protection of comedy of laughter of, yeah of humor i listened to to the ricky gervaises of the world and dave chappelle and and i'm like these guys are saying things that years from now will go wow they picked out how incredibly narrow-minded or limiting this view of something was long before any of us, you know, George Carlin was another person who probably did this. What are your thoughts on the role of comedians in the world today and kind of some of how comedy's freedom is under threat because of kind of a, you know, a, a revitalization of an appreciation for, <laughs> I'm trying to be diplomatic here, for political correctness, <laughs> you know, um, what, what are your thoughts around the role of comedy in the world? Funny thing is I tend to watch a lot of stand-up because I think that they, just as a speaker and as a preacher, I just think the craft of stand-up is really incredible. Like the way that people can hold an audience's attention with like zero slides, zero videos, and just the person on a stage with a mic. I think it's the hardest version of public speaking to do. 
Yeah, it must be. I don't know. I've I've always wanted to see if I could if I could if I could do it, but I I don't know. I think I'm I'm too. I don't think I'm that funny. I can get a laugh maybe every five minutes, but not like every couple of seconds. <laughs> well, I think it's I think it's easy to be funny if you're not expected to be funny. Yeah, yeah. You're supposed to make people laugh. That's that's hard. That's really tough. Yeah, I suppose when you like when you go to a comedy show, the audience is really primed, like they're expecting to laugh. So, like, the first joke is pretty easy because, you know, that's what they're there for. I, I actually agree with you. I think I, I also watch a lot of a lot of comedians because I think I mean, some of them are out, outright ridiculous in their opinions and, like, beyond offensive. But I don't want to, like, be or, like, tap into this whole snowflake culture of being offended at, at everything. But some of, some of it's like, it's like, wait, dude, that's, like, too much. And you're not really – you don't really have the depth to make a statement like that. So – but then if I watch somebody like Hannah Gatsby that did Nanette and what's the new one? Douglas on Netflix. Like those are incredible. And like she does it in a way that's funny and that's very prophetic and deep because it comes from a very true and real place. Like when some other comedians are, you know, taking apart religion or taking apart this or that or whatever, like it's like, you're just doing it because it sells, because it's popular at the moment. But I feel like somebody like her, it comes from like a really deep and honest place, which I appreciate. I mean, I do think it's important to acknowledge that there's some topics that are hurtful, harmful and triggering to people. But I, I think the freedom of humor and, and allowing comedians, comedians the freedom to explore the borderlands of, I think it's really important. I think it's important to societal discourse and to challenging norms. And it's, it's a responsibility in a sense, not, not to be, not to be taken lightly. And I think the best, the best comics understand that responsibility. Ironically enough, I think they get it perhaps more than many religious leaders do. And, you know, it's something I think that both ironically enough that both, profession share is this enormous weight of responsibility for exploring the borderlands of of what's safe yeah absolutely i agree with you absolutely i think that uh yeah that they when it's when it's done right like when it's done right and it comes from a true place like i think that's good but there's a difference for me when somebody is just trying to get a laugh like it's not it's like not the same thing especially i suppose if you talk about the bigger worldwide you know like really globally famous comedians that's a different it's like a different game but when you go to like your local comedy club and there's somebody trying to make a joke and they're tapping into offense just to get a laugh like there's a difference for me in that like it's not that's not prophetic it's just like it's like it it comes commercial it's like it's like trying just to trying to sell them or trying to get them famous like it's not the same thing yeah that's fair like just doing something for shock value is not the same as being prophetic <laughs> sure sure you do most of your work for corporates uh you spend time talking to companies about I guess a very wide range of topics but the importance of leadership and the importance of critical thinking and the importance of being deliberate and mindful in in you know in the value that you create why do you choose to do that work in the corporate world as opposed to i guess in in the more traditional framework for preaching which which would be the church for some reason i've always found myself with you know like a 
straddling these two worlds always at the same time. And often in my life, I've tried all my career. I've, I don't know what the word career means. Like I don't, I don't really don't like that word. So often in my life, I have tried to do one or the other, and it's never really worked. When I try and lean to one or the other, the other one tends to pull me back. And I think the value that I bring in both is because I'm in, I'm active in the other as well. Yeah. So because I can sit across both, and I can, I'll, I'm as comfortable in a boardroom with a C-suite as I am in a 200-year-old church preaching on a Sunday. And the values that I teach from the one to the other, they cross-pollinate just so well. And I think mm. there's some, some truths and some ideas and things that transcend boundaries like that. So something like meaning and something like the dealing with chaos. So when I, when I speak to, co- to corporates, I speak often, one of the topics I speak most on is on dealing with chaos, like dealing with uncertainty, uncertain times, mm. randomness, like all these things. And that's something that spirituality is like an absolute expert in. That's what all those practices that get taught in all the great religions are designed to do. They're all designed to help you deal with chaos. So when I speak to a corporate, like that's the place I'm speaking from. I was like, do you know how to deal with chaos? Well, here's the practices that you need to do. This is the way that you need to train yourself up so that you can handle chaos. Because that's the best way to handle it. It's like train for it. So without giving away your trade secrets, what are some of the the practical things that you would tell leaders to practice or to think about or to start doing on a daily basis? So for me, I think on a daily basis or as often as you can, is you need to create uncertainty in your life and in your business. You like need randomness. So you need to add things in that you that you don't normally don't look at. So for example, just just in terms of reading, like we tend to read things that we already agree with. Like so you so you go to the bookshelf at your local exclusive books or wherever and you pick something that you know you're gonna like, right? But you don't want to waste like 250 bucks. But the challenge then is to pick something that you don't know you're going to like or something that you might even disagree with so that it will shake you up because that adds like a level of beauty to your life. And like obviously this randomness can open up these unexpected gifts. And the more you expose yourself to randomness intentionally and uncertainty intentionally in little small things like that, like, like turning off your GPS and just trying to figure out by yourself by reading the street names where you're going to go to your next meeting or whatever. Like that's like a very simple practice you can do. And the more you do stuff like that, the more you get used to things being uncertain. So you're training yourself. It's like lifting a dumbbell. So you you, know, you don't lift a dumbbell in order to lift a dumbbell. You lift a dumbbell so that you can eventually carry something else, right? So that's how training works. And so the more you put these randomization practices into your life and into your business, like with your team, like to randomize stuff and move people in and out of positions and move the teams around and shuffle stuff around and expose them to new stuff. I remember years and years ago, one of the Springbok coaches, the rugby team coaches, took the whole team for ballet lessons for a season. And he took them all for ballet lessons. They realized how absolutely unfit they are and how not supple they are and how it just changed their training completely. And that's like the gift that chaos can bring. But a friend of mine says um, he used to be CEO for one of the big retailers like 10 or so years ago, maybe 15. And um, 
And so he said, a business works well when the big machine is well-oiled and everything is running like a shirt. Like, you make a good amount of profit, right? When there are no bugs in the system, when everything's like everything fits nicely and all the processes and the systems work. I say, but the thing that happens is that there's always rot that's busy setting in somewhere in the business, but you don't know it yet. It's underneath something, some system somewhere, some it's broken, but you can't see it yet. And what he said, which just confirmed my suspicion or my belief, is that you need mavericks in your team and in your business, dissident preachers or dissident engineers, to keep on breaking the system. Because even though the business doesn't like that and the stockholders don't like that or the shareholders don't like that, but like it's needed because that exposes the rot so that you can see what's actually broken and then you can fix it before it causes major damage. This is balance, this fine line that we need to walk between chaos and order. And that's where life is found, again, in the tension between the two, in the paradox. Now, this is really tough, right? You're talking about practicing the art of discomfort. Yeah. Which is, is so counterintuitive. And, I mean, it is a topic that keeps popping up, um, both from a sort of philosophical, but, but also from a practical perspective in so many of these shows, is how important it is to, to challenge the status quo and especially your own set of assumptions about the way things are or how they should be. But mine, like it's tough to get right. Eh? No, for sure. Because like, well, for example, when lockdown was announced, I think one of the first things I, I picked up my phone and I spoke to our community, so our church, our faith community, and I picked up my phone and made a video and sent it to everyone. And the first thing I said is, this is what you trained for. Like all that time spent in silence, all that time spent meditating, all that time spent on the treats, all that, this is what that was for. Hmm. And if you haven't spent that time, you better start freaking quickly because you're going to need it. Because that's what's carrying everybody through right now, this ability to handle uncertainty, and this, which they trained for by sitting in silence, by meditating, by fasting, by going on retreats, by doing all these crazy practices that seem so weird, and by intentionally placing themselves in these liminal spaces, in like these chaotic spaces. In the lockdown, the protracted, prolonged lockdown experience, Pierre, have there been moments where you felt particularly down or particularly disoriented or, I mean, I know I have, I've had some days that have been really dark and really tough. Um, talk to me about what you do in those moments to, to help you endure or to help you process them. For sure. I've, I've felt like very, very dark moments and emotional moments, uh, especially in the last, I think the last kind of three weeks or so, like two or three weeks ago, I went through a pretty dark patch because it's rough. Like it's damn rough. So the way that I've dealt with it, so I tend to obviously retreat back into my, like rely on my tradition and rely on my training or practices. And my way for dealing with like a very upsetting moment or like a deeply emotionally difficult space is to actually sit in it, to, to feel through it. So I think the biggest mistake that we make is that we don't acknowledge the emotion to just ignore it or to either try and like drag it away or uh, play it away or whatever, or it pops out someplace else, but to actually just really face it and to invite it in and feel that emotion properly and like cry it out or shout it out or 
or whatever it is that you need to do, and then to go through it, to give that emotion the time to do what it needs to, what it needs to do, because it, no emotion is bad. They're all good. They're all designed to keep you alive. So you need to feel them and then go through them so that they can do the work that they need to do with inside of you. So that was like my first thing to do. It's a, it's a, it's sort of a <clears throat> part of my meditation practice, a specific meditation that we do that welcomes in discomfort and that recognizes it and allows it to do its work. The second thing that's really important to me is to go to people that I know and that I trust and that I know that, that love me and have my best interest at heart and then to ask them to give me some perspective. So I can tell them I feel like this and this and that. I feel rejected. I feel alone. I feel like I don't know what to do uh, or whatever my emotion was on that day. And then they can tell me, but, but listen, this is who you are. Like this is the truth of who you are. You are talented. You are gifted. You've accomplished all these things. You've done that because it's very difficult for, I think, any human being. For me, maybe I'm completely alone in this, but like it's very difficult for me to read the label from the inside of the bottle, to, to remember who I am and what I've accomplished because our brains, for some weird reason, likes to point us to the negative. And likes to point me to the negative and then show me what I haven't done or what I haven't accomplished and not focusing on what I have. So, so it helps me. One of my, so it's literal practice to go to people and say, tell me about myself. Like, tell me, what do you see? Give me some feedback. What am I doing? What am I doing right? What am I doing wrong? So that's been like my two major practices in lockdown. The first one I call let's have tea actually. So you sit with your, with your demons and you tell them, let's have tea. And it's like an old Buddhist story that I love. Let's have tea. And the other one is get some perspective from somebody that loves you. And then Amor Fati. It's like loving fate. So having neatly brought us back to where we started, Pierre, it's been an absolute unsurprising pleasure to chat to you about a, wow, a, like a lot of things. Um, I feel like we covered a lot of ground in a, in a relatively short period of time. For people that want to connect with you more, hear more of what you are uh, thinking about, some of what you're publishing, wh where do they go? I know you have a daily newsletter. Is that right? Yeah, daily newsletter. It goes out Mondays to Fridays. So that's all on my, on my website. You can find that. So this is pierreduplessis.com. Or uh, if you just type my name into the Google machine, uh, pierreduplessis, then it will pop up. I think it should be number one or number two, I think. Yeah, so I've got a daily newsletter that has like a short daily, uh, like a prompt or an idea or like a training naked exercise that you can do or it's just something to read to like start your day. And then obviously Palestra is there and the books and everything is on my website. You can like poke around there and see what you like. Dude, that's amazing. Thank you so much. We'll also pop those links in the show notes so that listeners can go and find you uh, there as well. Thank you for your time, my friend. Thank you for your wisdom. And I look forward to our next conversation like this. Cool, dude. Thank you so much for having me. It's been fun. You've been listening to the One-Eyed Man podcast. I'm Mike Stopforth, an entrepreneur, writer, and public speaker, deeply curious about discovering better ways to lead and better ways to live in an increasingly complex world. I find the best source of these ideas is the experience and wisdom of interesting people who are taking unconventional approaches to solving the world's most compelling problems. 
If you'd like to hear from someone I haven't yet spoken to, visit mikestopforth.com, click on the podcast link, and send through your suggestions. A big thanks to the Solid Gold Podcast Studios in Johannesburg, South Africa, for making this production possible. And remember, in the land of the blind, a one-eyed man slash person is a king. You've been listening to another episode from the Solid Gold Podcast Studios.